0: He 3D printed uh, urinary bladders, um, genitalia for wounded soldiers, and they had wow. really good integration and able to function normally, or at least to some extent. And they did it in geriatric patients and be able to recover urinary bladders. So
1: that's amazing. So lungs, heart, heart. it's all it's fr- all coming.
2: It's mm-hmm. all possible.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Medical Matrix. I'm your host, Dr. Rosie Sender. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Erica Fisk. She is my co-host today. Today, we are going to discuss 3D bioprinting and the concept of a bone muscle crosstalk. So musculoskeletal diseases and injury affect roughly half the U.S. population. They cost billions of dollars a year in treatment, surgeries implants and loss of productivity. But many of these diseases are age-related and as we're living longer, it's an area that's attracting a lot of attention and research. Our next guests, through their innovative research, are helping us find new ways to treat musculoskeletal diseases at the Bone Muscle Research Center. So today we welcome Dr. Marco Brato. Marco is a George and Mary Hazel J. Endowed professor and director of the Bone Muscle Collaborative Sciences and director of the PhD in nursing program and the College of Nursing and Health Innovation at the University of Texas at Arlington. You are also the director of the Bone Muscle Research Center. And Dr. Venu Varanasi, he received his PhD at the University of Florida in the Department of Chemical Engineering. He did a postdoctoral fellowship at UCSF in Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. There, he worked on developing biogenic materials for use in bone healing. He is currently a faculty member at the University of Texas Arlington Bone Muscle Research Center. Welcome both the Dr. Brate and Dr. Varanasi.
3: Thank Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's it's such a pleasure. It's an honor. It should be.
0: Yeah, this is is a great honor to be on your podcast.
1: Oh, we appreciate that. Uh, It's an honor for having you here. So why don't we start with you, Dr. Brado, and uh, you can explain to us why you got into this area of research, muscle, bone, physiology, and what the Bone Muscle Research Center is.
3: So, you know, when I'm doing this right now with my hands, correct? I, I, hope, I hope there's going to be a recording <laughs> and people are going to see the video also. But I'm also, I'm also breathing, yeah? I'm also breathing right now. And I'm moving my head, you know, and I'm blinking my eyes. Everything that I'm doing right now is controlled by a muscle that we call skeletal muscles. So all these functions, from breathing to if I want to carry now a bag, something heavy, but also let's say that we are going to go now into a surgery room to save a life. We are going to use very fine movements to do a surgery. Also muscles are doing that. So very early in my career, I became really fascinated, you know, by muscles and how muscles are controlling these very fine movements by these same muscles can carry, you know, 50 kilos or a hundred you know pounds, if we can all understand better, you know, what I'm saying. And so it's it's so extraordinary. But these muscles, they don't work alone, correct? They work with our tendons, they work with our cartilages, they work with our bones. So I became very interested how the entire musculoskeletal system is working.
1: Okay. So can you tell us what kind of research you're doing at the Bone Muscle Research Center?
3: So, for a long time, you know, I was at the University of Missouri, Kansas City campus, and so, and there I built the first muscle biology research group. That was my first opportunity, and I think that work got noticed, and it was in that campus that I became very interested in this connectivity, in this connection between bone and muscles, because at that institution, there was a very prominent group of bone researchers. And so Dr. Linda Bonwald, imagine if you are doing bone research and your name is Bonwon, correct? And. <laughs>
1: I knew a hand surgeon whose name was Groper. Yes, I, that's <laughs> a real and, thing. <laughs> okay. and,
3: and, then, and then Dr. Mark Johnson, Dr. Sara Dallas, you know. And then we started collaborating and looking at bone and muscles together. And that started really a very large program of research that ended being funded by the National Institutes of. And so the National Institutes of Aging is part of the National Institutes of Health, NIH, which is, as we know, it's the most important agency for research in the entire world, as we know. Really, some of the most important discoveries for research have come through the NIH. And then in 2015, I received an invitation to move my operation to University of Texas, Arlington. And you are correct. So first we started as the collaborative. So first it was my small group, but then I had an opportunity to actually bring more individuals, more people like Dr. Varanasi, you know, that has this tremendous complementary expertise. So here I am, I am an aging expert. So I understand more of why people lose muscle mass and strength as they age. But what Varanasi understand about these biomaterials that we can put into muscles, into bones to make them regenerate faster. So it makes sense for us to work together. But we have also an expert that is an expert in ALS, Dr. Jin Song Jo, which is one of the leading experts in ALS. And as you can imagine, ALS is a disease of mitochondria. Mitochondria is very important for muscle aging, for bone aging, very important for what Dr. Varanasi is doing. Then we have another expert on bone diseases and vasculature, the vessels inside the bones. Then we have another expert on immune cells, the immune system. Then we have another expert that is an expert on calcium. Imagine, calcium is the building block of bone, of muscles. So this way we can come together in the Bone Muscle Research Center using these different expertise to come up with these new ideas that can lead to these potentially these new treatments, but also new diagnostics for musculoskeletal diseases.
1: Okay. I think one of the most interesting concepts that I came across when I was reading some of your research was the idea of bone muscle crosstalk. Can you explain a little bit what that means to our audience? So,
3: it, it's, I think it's it's so beautiful, but I'm going to take one step back because I think everyone here has heard of insulin, correct? I think everyone has heard of insulin. People take shots of insulin if they don't make enough insulin. And so. Where is insulin made? Insulin is made in an organ called pancreas. Now, insulin is made in the pancreas of every human, every mammal, every animal that has a pancreas makes insulin. After insulin is made, where does it go? To the blood, but works in the entire body. Why other organs in our body don't have the same capacity? Of course they have. So what we have discovered is that muscles like the pancreas secrete molecules, secrete hormones that we call myokines. And bones secrete these hormones that we call osteokines. And they influence each other. When we exercise, we make more of these. And we make, so when I exercise, you know, when I contract my muscles, I make more of these myokines, they make my bones stronger, healthier, and vice versa. The bones make more of these, make my muscles healthier, better.
2: This is all, it's it's very interesting, and and when you're talking about the the bone muscle crosstalk, what's so fascinating to me is that for surgeons, you know, we talk a lot about structural relationships, like how does muscle affect the structure of bone, but the bone muscle research center is going so much further than that because you're talking about how bones and muscles communicate with each other because they have the very much same structure all over your body, yet they act in totally different ways. And it seems like a lot of the research that you're doing is seeing how people are, or how these two very major structures in your body are communicating with each other and how they're doing it differently all over your body and and how we can use that to, to affect you know osteoporosis, and what are the the cytokines and the myokines that are important in aging and keeping bone healthy and I think that's really really fascinating
3: i was I was in an international conference that I presented you know I, I gave an invited talk, uh, and the audience were mostly surgeons, and so they were asking a lot of questions. And then this face and neck surgeon came to me and he said, I'm going to change all my surgeries. I'm going to consider now loading the muscles because I know why some of my surgeries are not working. Because I was ignoring the muscles. He was so excited after my presentation, you know, and you could see, I mean, his eyes were lighting up, you know. And he was like, "I can go now, redesign, you know." And he was saying, "I can also inject different drugs, you know, that is stimulating us." And and and, and you know, because there is so much, we we have an entire line now of work, and Dr. Varanasi is doing some of this also that we think can profoundly affect implants the way that we do implants. Because if you take into consideration that it's a system working together, and a lot of times we just consider the material and the bone and nothing else.
1: We work in parts. We're not not working holistically. That's the fascinating thing about your research, because again, we we tend to just look at the bone when we're treating uh, an injury. I mean, we're considering the muscles, but not really, you know, you, I'm going to go in, I'm going, I understand the deforming muscle forces, but we're not necessarily thinking of them communicating with one another and in the healing process, also communicating uh, with one another as well. Right. So it's just a different way of uh, considering this and that opens the door for us being able to more effectively treat our patients and, you know, as in, in the work that you're doing, find different ways of actually dealing with the problems that we haven't really solved yet, because I don't think we fully understood that communication that existed or that exists, I should say.
0: I want to add in a little bit too that a lot of what Dr. Brato uh, does research on is extremely translatable to your regular life. So he gets a lot into diet nutrition, how to, he's been giving me workout tips. And when you start thinking about it from that point of view, because he, he, has, he has a reasonable expertise as well in exercise physiology, you, you can't, you know, the, the muscle acts as a force couple to the bone and the bone doesn't get stronger unless the muscles are working hard. And when we talk about implants, like Dr. Brock was talking about. There's going to be a new age of physical therapy where a lot of people are getting older, they're getting implants, they need to be mobile, they need their muscles to move their bones for the bones to get stronger, and those implants won't integrate with the bone unless the muscles are actually helping that process. So a lot of what Dr. Brato discusses, although very specific to the bone muscle communication pathways, a lot of it translates to real life. So you know, there's a lot of great tangible lessons from Dr. Brato
3: one one example, you know, from, from the surgical world, and you, you you both are clinicians, you know, you have a compounded fracture. What is one of the most effective ways to treat with a muscle flap? Yes, that's true. <laughs> you put a muscle flap, it heals four times faster. Nobody ever talks about that. Oh, why it's working faster well because there is a muscle flap there that it's now releasing those myokines that is the reason
2: so is there a way that that you're researching that you can implicate or bring in those myokines in without having to bring in the muscle flap you said you're doing injectables or is there anything that's applicable kind of in today's surgical world where you can increase your healing potential with these injectable type of myokines without having to take a muscle fat per se
3: one thing you know I really appreciate your your question so go back to 2016 avid nutrition co- contracted with my lab for uh, a series of supplements that they wanted confirmation we actually did an entire series of experiments highly powered you know preclinical studies in animals and actually those supplements now they exist in nutritional supplements that are used in clinics for patients with certain conditions. So you see clearly one example of something that we were involved, you know, that went from animal and then this was confirmed in humans and those products, you know, exist. So this is one example. Uh, unfortunately, also, one thing that happens with some of these some of these myokines, are people that are extremely fast, and they release these things in the market, correct? And there is no confirmation on the purity. So people are, you know, now already selling Baiba and Gaba, you know, because we have shown that these myokines they work you know in animal models in cells but also the purity of these things that are being sold there is no confirmation of the purity and just to give an idea commercial sources that we bought we actually tested and they were only 50 percent good so than that and so you you are really not buying you know something that that it's really reliable, you know. But we do think that eventually, there's going to be, of course, reliable sources of this that could be incorporated. So this would be one way, potentially, you know, having these as supplement, you know, sources. The other way is probably obtaining these from natural diets, from improved diets, diets that have, you know, Micronutrients. These are some of the things I think that Van was alluding to, you know, in terms of this, my, my own personal history. You know, you look at me now, but I used to be 400 pounds. So I think I can be a good example, you know, to cheer people on, you know, and tell people you can do it, you know, you do these these specific changes. And, you know, so back a few years ago, I walked on fire and then after i did that i think i can change my weight <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> so can i so can i just go back to when you were talking about how the products that are commercially available are not as effective as it there's there's a lack of like regulation like an fda regulation or are they is that can you speak on that or
3: yeah i i'm not you know, I'm not necessarily judging all the products because, of course, we have not tested. Oh, you know, we will. But. <laughs> but, but, but what I'm saying is we obtain commercially available source. These are high quality for research and those forces, only 50 60% was intended product. And so we decided to actually synthesize to make our own, you know, for our own research, because we use FDA, Food and Drug Administration methods when we are doing this type of research. So it's very serious, you know, because we are trying to develop methods that we we can validate these methods for diagnostic of osteoporosis, of sarcopenia, of human diseases. So it's, it's very serious, you know, the level of research that we are trying to do. So what I'm saying is, if if the compounds we are buying from the highest sources, from the chemical companies, don't have that level of purity, imagine the ones that, you know, are being sold in the general market. So really they have an extreme level you know of purity when it comes to that. I do think that, as we show that data, as we show how to obtain higher levels, and as companies that have a vocation for this type of research they get involved, that we can obtain you know better products in the future.
2: Okay. So one of the questions I had I mean, there's so many supplements and things that are marketed as for osteoporosis or, you know, increased bone healing. This is a huge market in orthopedics. I mean, we, we, I mean, people are PRP and stem cells, and the research is so mixed, and people are always asking, like, how can I help? not necessarily get ahead or kind of cheat it, or how, how do we speed this process up? You know, how do I make my bones healthier? Do I have to take a bisphosphine? Is it, is it vitamin D? Is it myokine? Is it, what, what do you say to those, you know, as far as products, what can you say to those people?
3: I can say that we can follow the ASBMR recommendation, correct? The ASBMR stands for the American Society of Bone and Mineral Research. So we do abide, we do follow those recommendations. So there is a recommendation for daily, you know, daily or weekly. I go by weekly. I think it's better to take one bolus uh, of vitamin D instead of daily, you know, because if you think how vitamin D works, vitamin D, actually, just just think about if you do an exam and you find that your vitamin D levels are low, actually the prescription is one pill per week of a high dose, correct?
1: Yeah, I had to do that for 12 weeks, 50,000 units.
2: Well, that's something that I put into my practice all the time because I th- I've I don't know, I think that that's probably just my bias that when you see fragility fractures in people with osteoporosis, the easiest thing that is to correct as a vitamin D level. I mean, I, the, the data's there and I believe in it, right? The
3: data is there. So people should be taking vitamin D. People should be taking calcium, correct? It helps
2: with coronavirus too. Yeah, so exactly.
3: They say. <laughs> One thing that I don't see people taking, so vitamin D and, and calcium do not work without K. Uh, so it's good to take some K, correct?
1: Yeah, okay. What about magnesium? I thought that that was also
3: ma- ma- magnesium is also very good for muscles, correct? Because it helps to set, you know, the basic tone, you know, of muscles. We also know that complexes of multivitamins do not seem to help, right? They actually, seem to do harm. But when you take individually these vitamins, they seem to be helpful, you know. But specific. But also, if people are taking Calcium and vitamin D and K, but they are not getting any exposure to sunlight, then it's pointless, correct?
0: Yeah, yeah,
3: Yeah. very, very true. It doesn't activate. And also, those 30 minutes of sunlight is also very good for sleep, correct? Because now it's going to set your clock. So you see, by doing these things, now people are doing a number of things. So imagine now if they are walking for 30 minutes in the sunlight. Now they are setting the clock. Now they are exercising for 30 minutes. So now they are doing some loading to the balls, correct? Now imagine, now let's add a little bit of weight to that walk, a little bit of weight. So if you see now, now in, in a little bit, just a little bit, we change the entire routine of that person from unhealthy to extremely healthy, extremely healthy. Now imagine if that person, imagine we could convince that person to start the day with a big glass of water with lemon. Nothing else, correct? Because now it's going to flush the liver. And then the second is a smoothie, just fruits with water.
1: Uh, By the way, I'm doing everything wrong because my first thing is (laughs) two big cups of coffee. (laughs) And
2: I'm hiding my Diet
0: Coke down there. (laughs) I still still think you're okay. After the coffee, you drink those two big glasses of water. I think you're still okay. I'm doing that now. So They started without the first cup of coffee. So four-year-olds demand that.
2: (laughs) Amen to that. No, I totally understand that. I have a two-year-old and an eight-month-old, so I I totally understand the coffee necessity, especially during quarantine, etc.
0: Well, well, in my case, I because I still drive, so I I need to have that alertness. And my my vision loss is not too bad, but it it's progressed to the point that I actually need that coffee because it just stimulates the muscles in my eyes to be more able to focus. Not just not focus necessarily, but raster the road a lot easier. So. Uh, I'm not a danger, but you know, I still function very functional. But yeah, I need yeah. that coffee. I can't. I can't move my eyes well without it. So.
1: Okay, and also, and also, to do the work that you're doing right now. So, I had one more quick question before we transition into 3D printing.
2: You know, by understanding the the muscle bone relationship, like, what is what is your main goal in you know treatment and affecting the the medical community? I mean, what is the main goal behind the muscle? Of the Bone Muscle Research Institute. Is it to prevent or is it to help heal? Is it, you know, or where is that understanding leading to you in an ideal world? What's your vision? So
3: I, I'm going to, to say a few things, but then I'd like for Dr. Varanasi to also add to that answer. So I think that the, the main goal of the Bone Muscle Research Center is. We, we actually have one of our major goals is training. And so we all have a lot of students, undergrads, graduate students, fellows, postdocs, you know, uh, new, very young junior faculty that are training under us. So this is one of our major goals is to train this new generation of bone muscle researchers that are going to become new investigators, are going to continue, you know. I do plan to live 200 years, you know, extremely healthy, but I want somebody to continue this tradition, you know, and and know how to do these things with way more quality and more intelligence and smartness than what I do today and so they when we should be preparing you know these new generations the other i think the other goal is we we have so much room for better faster diagnostics with covid-19 we we are seeing how how bad we are with diagnostics correct of diseases we still do the diagnostic of osteoporosis The same way we were doing 50 years ago with x-rays. Which is,
2: yeah, right, with a DEXA scan. Yeah, a DEXA scan,
3: for God's sake. There has to be a better way, correct?
2: Well, so, and that's expensive. Insurance doesn't even pay for it until you reach a certain age. And so a lot of people who are vitamin D deficient, or you know, have all these other problems that we don't know about yet because we don't have the research to to know what we're looking for yet. And then they have these fractures, and maybe it could have been prevented if there was some type of tracking of osteoporosis that wasn't X-ray and you know archaic like what we've been doing for the last fifty years. So you know, and, could we have a marker that would make you know your predisposition to fractures and osteoporosis more available to to public it at a younger or earlier time in your life?
1: And and just also to understand that concept of the bone muscle relationship. Cause you know, if I think even as clinicians, if we knew how to use that relationship to our advantage, we probably could help people earlier on in, in terms of like a preventative healthcare strategy before they go on to get fractures or if they do. Put everybody on GABA
2: and vitamin D. Exactly. Strategy. And ex- give them a bone stem right away. Bone stem. I give bone <laughs> stem. I
1: give bone <laughs> stems liberally. It's like like I, candy. I, yeah, exactly. I, I'm not, I'm not waiting for three months. So you're going to get it pretty quick.
3: The other goal that we have is, so we published a, a paper in one of, you know, in one of the very high impact, one of the major journals, uh, we came up with a potential new blood serum, just blood biomarkers for osteoporosis in young women. And so we are very excited about that. We are expanding now. That was 190 women. We even have now collaboration with the NIH. We're going to get blood from the NIH, from other clinics. We're beginning to have collaborations with Italy, Austria, Germany, Brazil, other, other centers in the United States. This is becoming really big, you know. So if we can apply this and then imagine if we have these biomarkers that we know that work, and now we can pass this information to Dr. Varanasi, and now he can put this into these new biomaterials for implants, for processes, you know, for new biomaterials that we can put in muscles, in bones, then... That would be our three major goals.
1: So if, if, with these markers, now obviously it's in early stages of research, but this is something that you can start working on in terms of getting insurance companies to kind of accept that as like markers that we would use to help in our clinical practice, right? Right now you can't even
2: get vitamin D paid for right. insurance, I, but you have like I, an osteoporotic panel, right, that you I mean. get in... Could be like included. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's what I mean. Because like I, that's because part of the problem is the cost of osteopor. You know what it costs the U.S. annually for uh, treatment of osteoporosis and the related.
3: Yeah, our our goal is to have like a panel. Imagine if we could have a panel that costs like a hundred dollars.
2: Like mm-hmm. Parathyroid hormone, yeah. vitamin D, yeah. your calcium, all that. That stuff. And then you add in GABA and some other things that you guys yeah, are, GABA, are researching,
3: and some other things. You know, and, and now when you put five to ten things together, and there is an algorithm correct, this is up, this is down, this is up, this is down. Now, really, you are going to have
1: as long as we can sort of demonstrate that in research models, like I think it's going to, it's going to be much less expensive than caring for the costs of what, you know, an osteoporotic fracture, the surgeries, the aftercare, all of that stuff. Right. So I think.
3: The other thing that it's really exciting is we, we are beginning like a collaboration with the VA. TVA has done, incredibly good things for the country, for the world, correct? There's so many things that has come out from the VA because the VA system, you know, differently from universities and I funded research, there is much more room there for collaboration because a lot of times there is not so much expectation, you know, from a product, from profit, you know, it's really a system of collaboration a lot of devotion you know and the 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 VA, the va doctors you know they will tell you there's so much need for a biomarker that exercise programs are working you put somebody on an exercise program correct and you need to wait 12 weeks 16 weeks 20 weeks but now that person gives up Now, imagine if you could put the person just three days, five days, do a little prick on the finger.
2: I will sign up for that.
3: Correct. Do a little prick on the finger. And now you could say, look, the exercise is working for you.
2: Yeah. People always want the quicker and faster way. And if you can show that, that would be fantastic. I mean, yes, Uh, I know you. I'm in.
1: It's also (laughs) that I, it's also that I think psychologically it helps somebody too, right? If they can see an objective evaluation of what they're doing, like they're actually seeing these biomarkers. And so, Hey, this say this program is working for you. I think that helps you and it motivates you to continue on a program that way i wanted to also you know start directing this conversation into is the in situ like the 3d bioprinting and talking a little bit more about that and and perhaps vinya you can i really think that it'd be interesting for you to tell your story of almost as a necessity. You developed this as a necessity. So why don't you go into your story and tell us a little bit about 3D bioprinting?
0: Yeah. If you don't mind, I'll just add to the goals and then I'll I'll talk about the story. Oh, Um, sure. Absolutely. um, Yeah. You know, my three main goals and this carries over through my whole history of my life is, you know, how can I best mentor the next generation? very much piggybacking off of what Dr. Brato is, is mentioning. But I've had this in my mind since my dad has even taught me to look out for others. You know, the other goal is, you know, what are the patient needs? And then as a byproduct between the two, how can I have students create different tools, improve the precision so that clinicians can have an easier time delivering the healthcare and delivering the healthcare treatments and needs for their patients? And Part of my process of doing that is I hire students who are already doctors, like orthopedic surgeons, uh, who are already craniofacial or bone uh, dentists, who are trying to train and becoming residents and working in surgery at some point. And I collaborate with other people who can value the technology as well. So I try to go from a from a clinical perspective of this clinical student aspiring to get a PhD, but learning the engineering side. So that way, whatever tools are built, they're built from the ground up from a clinical point of view. And so that's that's how we It's
2: about understanding the need. Yeah. yeah. So if you better understand the need, then you're you're you are better equipped to start to find a solution. Correct.
0: And I can't I am not med- I'm not able to medical qualify to become a doctor. I did try to get into med school after undergrad, but my, my vision loss had been a little bit too great by that point. So I had to I had to go for a PhD. <laughs> so, oh, too bad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, yeah, that's that's yeah, exactly. That's much harder. But you know, I've always had that aspiration to work in materials and have clinicians be involved in and in creating the new innovations. And my students are doing that right now. So, my story, you know, I've, I've had macular degeneration since I was eight years old. It, it progressed to through normal vision loss. You know. Stig- it was a non stigmation type of de- uh, degeneration back in the late 80s and early 90s. And then I finally got diagnosed in, in 88 with a form of macular degeneration, although it's called the juvenile form. In 1997, it was later recharacterized as Stargardt's disorder. And it's the ACAB4 gene, if I'm not mistaken that I finally got the diagnosis. Uh, interestingly enough, I got the diagnosis from my uh, vision specialist. His name was Dr. Gouge. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, <laughs> and his bedside manner was indicative of his name. But uh, he, was, he, was, he was very straightforward and very blunt, explaining to me that, you know, at that time, you know, finish up whatever you can because I don't know how far you can go. And luckily, through my 30s, uh, through my early 30s, I was okay. But that's when, about ten years ago, it started to progress even worse, and now I'm in stage four, where I'm having uh, the wet form, uh, the dry form rather, of macular degeneration, and it's progressing very slowly. But I still have some central acuity, have a lot of good peripheral vision, but I use it. And in about six, seven years ago, I got uh, funding from NIH to run a project on implants, and I was trying to place the implants into these little rats, and it's it was just too hard to focus. So I got some assistance and I bought it. I had a 3D printer in the lab and I said, you know, why don't we just put the rat under the printer and see if we can imprint it and make it more conformal uh, and easier to put the implant material into the little rat. And little did I know that it would blow up as much as it is, as has to the point where there's several investigators now competing I had the first patent action on the technology and the first publication in the area for cranial printing, and you know it—it's—it it, was just born out of necessity, so I can complete the project and I can write a nice NIH report. <laughs> so
2: I'm sorry, I'm not sure. I—I I want to understand that fully. So you're 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 printing models of the what? What exactly
1: were you printing? Yeah, I was going to add. Yeah, can you just go through the process of what 3D bioprinting?
0: Yeah, I can show you basically by hand. So. We have our little rat, and it's got a little defect in it. And we put the printer nozzle directly into the space where the where the defect is. We map the defect, and with the, using a digital camera, and then we take the the digital camera image, make it into a computer-aided design file, a CAD file, and then immediately print, and we print the shape of the defect that's there with a biopolymer like a gelatin. We've been experimenting with Jello, strawberry Jello, actually so, you know, because it's red, it's red on it's red on white. so, and we put little particles of all kinds of different particles. We've been using these these I forgot this the name of it, it's laponite. It's a cream. it's a nanoparticle that's put into creams to make their consistency a little bit smoother on the skin. Those little nanoparticles we've been using to stimulate some bone You should, you should as well. watch it uh, we developed some of our own biomaterials as well, but that's basically how it works. it's 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 a pretty simple concept, but there's a lot of engineering there behind it. Plus you have this material tissue interface and in real time you're bonding that tissue, that material, to the underlying tissues within the bone defect, the connective tissues.
3: You should you should both watch the movie.
2: Yeah, I couldn't get it loaded.
1: Yeah. But I would I'm very much interested. No, so I was going to ask you when you, is you're, so you're creating a scaffold and then are we, re- are we relying on like, for example, if it's like the um, osteokines and the myokines to start that crosstalk to do the regeneration or can you sort of explain that? Well,
0: yeah, I, in the cranial bone, not necessarily so because there's not that much muscle up there. Oh, I just
1: meant in general. I didn't mean just like for that model, just the the concept. Yeah. In
0: general, you'll have this defect, you'll have connective tissue, but you'll have muscle in contact with that defect as well. So we'll release material, just inorganic material. But you, 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 you are also leaving some blood. Yeah, there is some blood and there's some cells, but there's also material being released from the inorganic material being released from these scaffolds. And then they release and they affect the localized tissue that are nearby, including muscle. And so they can stimulate muscle to produce some of those myokines and then enhance the healing rate faster in defects that are lo- nearby local muscle. But in defects that are absence of muscle, they can still stimulate healing by stimulating the vascular response within the actual bone bone layers. So there's a, there's a, dual, mechan- a dual playing mechanism that's involved there.
3: But, but you, you, you are also correct. So we are also beginning to do these experiments where we are adding to the substrates, we are adding the myokines.
0: Mm.
2: Okay, so you're okay. So you're getting a complete osteo inductive and conductive yeah, exactly. type exactly. of exactly. type of introduction. Yeah, exactly.
0: But I, you know part of the process of making this is also to make it so that you can remove hands from the patient. And we can operate the the defect manufa- the the manufacturer of the the implantable material directly an- into the patient. So you are meeting the patient's sh- dimensional shape and existing microstructural needs while operating a computer and then controlling all the manipulation by a computer.
1: I was gonna ask the example then if you're if you're saying that we can take ourselves out of that situation where we're directly treating the patient, can you walk us through for example, somebody has a traumatic injury and say they have uh, uh, say they have a fracture and there's bone loss yeah
0: well i I, I can tell you how we do our exact uh, procedure. we actually mock the o r as much as we possibly can so we we do a little pretending because we are working with rats so in the end, there are, there are patients and basically they have an induced defect. We bring them in on a, on a well, we don't we call them the gurney, but it's...
1: I was going to say, is it a gurney? It's basically, no, cute. it's basically our <laughs> animal
0: transport bed that we, we bring it on. And we, <laughs> That's we do, awesome. we do an interview with the animal as if it's a patient. We have the student there as the patient advocate. Okay. And okay. basically that patient advocate is helping in the triage situation where we're trying to determine, you know, what's the actual issue here. So we examine the animal, we look at the defect, we examine, our our students examine, the ones with clinical background, examine for fragmented bone on the surface without too much touching. They do also do a little bit of analysis by, you know, some of the tweezers and poking through. And they can kind of tell, you know, what kind of fractured bone they have. So then once we take them off of the gurney, we put them under anesthesia, under um And then we place them under the printer. We open up the we open up the skin. We suture. We flap the skin. Flap the periosteum, which is the layer that's above the bone. And then we examine the bone layer. If it's fragmented, what we often do is we'll remove the fragments and try to extract the cells if we can. But generally speaking, we're, we're trying to do is not work with cells right now. We're trying to isolate the material effects only. And then we make our little materials, put them into little syringes, attach them to the printer, and immediately image cat you know use a cat file to to directly make the shape and then we print the shape in all of this takes place in a matter of 30 to 45 minutes
2: wow, wow. Whoa. okay the, is, the it, is that size part, dependent in some ways and yeah if it is making... but it was,
0: we make human size defects so we make eight millimeter eight millimeters defects in, okay. in in those animals right now well, those are big rats by the way so
3: but but what what in what if, if i if i may add you know well, for first you know a, a personal comment. Dr. Varanasi is one of my heroes of course you know having the, uh, the visual impairment you know and and reaching you know these levels. I think it's it's so beautiful you know the these examples you know and 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 I, I want to make this comment because someone in our department in our college came to me one day and said, that guy is so snobbish, you know? We go by him and he doesn't say hi to us back, you know? And then I said, well, do you know that his vision is 2050? <laughs> On a good day, you know? But this, this shows that we have these biases, correct? And so in this, in this age of us recognizing you know, our, our own prejudices, you know, I think it's really interesting, you know, this example of Venu in our college, you know. And so that was a teaching moment for that person that Venu was not waving back or was not saying hello back, not because he's Snormish, but because he has a visual impairment. But, we
1: tend to, th- yeah, but we tend to, I think that's, uh, people just tend to do that, right? They actually, a lot of times, it's really not about you, you know, uh, and, you know, there's something else going on with other people. I think we do that a lot in general. I, think and, I, yeah. I have
0: to say, yeah, I've had a lot of situations like that. A lot of people do believe I'm arrogant. So I get a lot of, I do get a lot of pushback on anything I, you know, do or say sometimes, because I think people have a predisposition or a pre-notion that I'm ignoring them. I just can't see what they're saying or doing. And it actually has come up as some, some issues sometimes that I've had to resolve and it's not by intent. It never is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like some, it's not like you want to tell your story every time you meet somebody. Oh, Hey, by the way, you know, just, I just want to make you feel a little bit better, but this is why. (laughs) A lot of times
2: people just think the worst and assume the worst and, and and their negativity transmits. I had a question about the insight to, I mean, The benefit of doing it is that you can do it in a short amount of time and limit another surgery or surgical exposure, because there is technology out there that exists that you can map a defect with a contralateral CT or pre-existing, and then you can 3D print it. And I guess the way that I can think of it is that I, you know, for in dentists, you take an impression of a defect from a cavity and then they go 3D print your crown and you come back in two weeks later and that it's that time. So you're, you're seeing like a in um, real time replacement in surgery that can, that can map exactly the defect that exists at that time. And I think.
0: Yeah. That's, amazing, that, right? that's a technology that we were doing a lot of commercial evaluation with. And what we found advantageous with what we're doing is not just mapping the defect. It really is a an understanding of the chemistry and mechanics of the fracture that has to be taken into account. And that parameter, those parameters, thinking like an engineer, deparameterizing that and programming that into our scaffolds as we bond them directly into the patient-connected tissue, as well as the surrounding bone, and understanding that that mineralized tissue just went through a fracture, which means it went through a crack propagation, which means it went through grain boundaries. You have to understand that component in order to put down a proper scaffold that can quench that mechanical instability. And I think that's mm-hmm. the aspect that when you print, when you image and you print, or you wait for an implant to come in, the problem is a defect will change over that time period, even if it's yeah. just a few hours or a few, a few days. So you you, know, so you you want to get to
3: it immediately. I I want to 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 make a a comment about this is Venu, Doctor Varanasi, he was doing this already, you know, and I was very impressed with his work, but I came to him and I said, I have a challenge for you, my friend, because that's what I do, correct? And and these 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 younger fellow they, they have a lot of respect for for my challenges <laughs> so I told him how about doing this in a muscle because you know muscle defects are a huge problem for patients and for soldiers in the battlefield and so there is this this syndrome that it's called compartment syndrome
1: Oh, but yeah, we're, we, we're familiar
3: with we that. Yeah. Lose, we yeah, very we lose with that, a yeah. lot of soldiers. So now you have this soldier that, you know, is highly trained, that cost, you know, the government millions to get to that level and now survived the, the blast. But now you have to go to the fascia and cut the entire muscle to save that limb, you know. So, and then... And then we, we we actually, we participated. Of course, we have the muscle expertise. We used, again, the rat model. 20% of the muscle of that animal was removed, you know, on a surgical model. He 3D printed that animal walked within 30 minutes. I had never seen that. How is
2: it explicable, right?
3: I had never seen that in my entire life in any model. Nothing. The animal was standing
0: on that same part. I would consider it more like a repair at that point. The regeneration would still have, happen, have to happen to the background because the regeneration process is still a biological process. But the fact of the matter is, if you can put a material and immediately have it bound bonded to the surrounding tissue, and the animal or the, the the patient can load the defect while in the background regenerates. Imagine the extra effect of regeneration as occurs when you can actually load onto the actual organ that's trying to be uh, regenerated, uh, especially wow, the muscle. Wow, that's amazing! And if
3: that if that material can stimulate myogenesis instantaneously, correct? So now you you could imagine that myogenesis could start chewing through that material and now you are going to have a replacement you know of muscle cells.
2: My question so you, you mentioned compartment syndrome compartment syndrome is when the muscle dies because of external pressure from swelling or blood and you have an actual not a muscle death not necessarily a muscle loss so in that sense, you're not really having a defect per se, you're having a loss of function. So I, it's really hard for me to grasp as a structure. I'm the art, you know, we're architects, we're surgeons, we change anatomy. And when you talk about regaining function, by by 3D printing something that's structural, you know how does that happen? You know you're you're putting something in that doesn't have you know life or does not yeah. necessarily respond to to the body because it's a, it's a foreign what, implant, what is the right? Treatment, so the
3: treatment currently is you cut through the layers, correct, and then and then and then you cut the fascia, and then you you expose now that muscle and then now you can perfuse so imagine now if you could immediately 3d print the layers that you just cut you know for oh
1: you're talking about all the layers until uh, to get to the muscle yeah. is that what you're saying
3: so you you just opened everything correct all the way to the muscle actually you cut all the way through the muscle you cut the first layers of of the muscle also and 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 you 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 actually don't close everything up. You just close yeah we the skin yeah we can yeah because that's, you need to correct. leave open to relieve the pressure, you know. And you you do some perfusion. But now imagine if you could three D print, you know, some biomaterial to promote the healing of that tissue.
0: Yeah, and and on top of that, the scaffolds we make can promote vascular penetration as well. So, imagine- so if you cut
2: down to like a normal, healthy muscle, and so you create a muscle defect by removing that dead muscle in the setting of a failed compartment syndrome or a progressive compartment syndrome, you can actually remove that and regenerate the defect and hope that it integrates into healthy live muscle. That's <laughs> amazing.
1: So initially, you're that when you're 3D printing, you're, you've made that scaffold, right? That's what you're doing. And then, and then we're allowing for the process of regeneration to occur over the biological period that it does. Yes,
0: correct. But what we want to do is make sure the interconnected, interconnectivity between the material and the surrounding tissue is there. So that way you have very little gap or space so the animal can, can use that for mechanical stability. Another aspect of the scaffolds too, because they promote vascular uh, vascularization and tissue formation, in a lot of the situations with compartment syndrome, you have that initial blockage and lack of venous uh, flow. So imagine you can spread that blood and alleviate that pressure through the scaffold itself. Now you can promote some of the regeneration process by allowing vasculature to get through, so our blood to get through. So. The,
3: the, the biomaterial also has uh, antioxidant properties. And so that is very important because initially in these processes, there is a lot of free radicals. There is a lot of oxidation, free radicals, inflammation. So the biomaterial itself is fighting, you know, that. So in this model, in this call model, Dr. Varanasi did not mention this, but the, the best biomaterials available you know, the published studies, a lot of the published studies, the time to to close this gap, you know, in the rat is 30 days with his material, one week, four times wow. faster.
1: So what's the, what is your, what are the biomaterials that you're using specifically? I'm using
0: traditional FDA approved biomaterials right now. I am developing some new biomaterials and I published a little bit on this. So... I'm using, actually what's interesting is I'm using old microprocessor biomaterials for our actual biomaterials applications. So there are these things called high-K or low-K dielectrics, and they're used to control leakage of electrons through a silicon wafer into into a gate that allows them to be conducted and used in all kinds of different computer. Nobody's going to understand what you, you're saying. So
2: yeah. I, you lost you me say? a while ago. Yeah. Explain
0: out for everybody. Okay, well, to simplify that down, these are commonly used 486 or 386 processors from the 1990s, and we're reusing some of those materials for the actual healing applications. And there's a lot of there's a lot of physics associated with it. But the bottom line is, what we're doing is we're utilizing a lot of the biological pathways that are on what is the material? What is well, the materials material is uh is silicon is a silicon based material called silicon okay. oxy nitride. I apologize. Strawberry,
2: Strawberry gelatin. And uh, yeah, <laughs> we are also
0: using gelatin as well and Jello as well, and we integrate the materials together for the scaffold. We also make coatings for implants, hard uh, implants like titanium implants. But the main materials is a silicon oxy nitride material that we integrate. We t- make as a film, but we can also make nanoparticles and we inject them into the into the biopolymer before we print them.
1: Okay. Can I ask a, can I ask another question? So we've we've talked about bone and muscle and what about cartilage? Are you looking at potentially being able to repair or restore cartilage?
0: It's another challenge. I love it. Yeah. I gave it right here. <laughs> they, the, 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 <laughs> Do you accept the, the, the challenge? <laughs> yeah, the cartilage is a very interesting animal and the challenge with cartilage is the the acellular aspect of it i was asked exactly. i was asked about a couple of years ago and by a oh what is what is the type what is the professional name the the person who puts a cosmetic surgery put noses and ears not not a, not a cosmetic surgeon but the oral maxillofacial surgeon no 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 it, it's uh, somebody puts the the uh, the rubberized ent no it's not it's not at that level it's well i can't remember the name but it, it's somebody who who actually puts the uh, silicone type, not, not the type of materials I work with, but the silicone rubber. A
1: prosthetist. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 That's right. They, they, that person will put that, they asked me to make a 3D printed ear one time. And I said, you know, they're, they're out there right now. The, the only limitation with it is you have to make, if you want to make a biological ear, there has to be some level of cellular growth and deposit of cartilage, but then those cells have to go out. They can't yeah. maintain there for very long. Only the small amount of cells necessary to maintain the skin and vasculature nearby. So that's tricky, but it's something that is a challenge that we are very much thinking about right now. It's a it's a matter of the right materials and the matter of the right skin, cartilage and lipid interaction there, and and I'm sure there's a lot of musculature as well. So,
3: I I, I think what is going to happen. With uh, much of this is when I was at uh, the University of Missouri, I actually brought, you know, there a tendon biologist. He's still there. His name is uh, Eduardo Abreu. Uh, so he's still there. He's a tendon, a tendon specialist, you know, because when I started bone muscle, I said, we, we need a tendon person you know, to, to come. So I think I think what is going to happen in the very near uh, future, we are going to attract at our center cartilage experts, tandem biologists, you know, that are going to uh, to come, you know, to our center, add to this expertise. And because you are correct, you know, we need that that expertise. So have very good expertise in bone, in vasculature, the immune cells, correct? We are learning more and more that every tissue that we look at has this this vastness of immune cells inside that tissue. So immune cells, they they seem to go up, up in every tissue for communication in between. That is why we think actually now with COVID, we see this, this complication of symptoms, you know, because it's activating actually immune cells in every organ in the body, actually.
0: And that's why it's so complicated. And, and part, of, part of the other reason why I like the technologies that we work with as well is, you know, it does force some social distancing between the patient and the, the clinician. Because if you're controlling everything on a computer, you only have to minimize your interaction with the patient. And that's another that's another distinct advantage, I believe, that we have, where we can have everything controlled, you know, somewhat remote site, meaning a few, few more feet away. And the clinician has perfect control over all the technology that's being developed. So in combination with these things, you have a lot more control. And it takes some time to develop it there. There's going to be some educational hurdles. Of course, there will be. But in the end, if the goal is that you know clinical professionals are able to do this job at a much easier pace and a much lower cost, which is the other aspect that has to be always talked about, what we've already discussed. If we can lower those costs and lower those insurance costs, the premiums, the reimbursement rates, then we're all winning in this in this battle against uh, disease and disorder. So.
1: Can I just, just to speak on the, the COVID issue, what are your thoughts on like the coronavirus and the musculoskeletal effects? Do you have any thoughts
3: on that? My 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 thought goes back to like three months ago when when we started looking at the very early data. I started writing some white papers, you know, circulating with our network international network actually, you know, making some comments. I actually, I actually have the Broto protocol. I started telling everyone, you know, boost, boost your muscle lifting routine, you know, increase your, your protein intake that people, people get it wrong. That's, does not need to be animal sources, you know, can be It can be from from plants, you know, uh, plant sources, you know. So because because when when you look at the key symptoms of COVID, majority of them are muscle-related, correct? And when, when you look at the images of people of before and after, it's just so incredible the amount of weight and muscle that people lose and i I don't know if we have data yet, but eventually I think we are going to have data that people that have more muscle, I think their 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 life actually is being preserved because they have muscle to lose so if you're go into the disease without any muscle, then I think it's a good deal you know yeah so, we
0: so you know Dr uh, brock Dr. Brato and I were talking about this virus being an, an aging virus, basically. Because if you look at the, yeah. the way the muscle is lost and all the different organs that are affected, it looks like it accelerates the aging process in those organs. And that's the battle we have to fight. And that's the battle, Dr. Brato. Actually, we call them the protocols. And,
3: <laughs> and then, and then if, if you look at that, it's killing... It's killing majority of people that die, sadly, are older adults. They naturally have more less muscles, correct? And less muscle, you know, mass and have already muscle weakness. So it's already like they are less prepared, you know, from a musculoskeletal point of view, health-wise, for the infection. So it's, it's really interesting. And on the first GWAS, GWAS is genome-wide association studies, 50 muscle-related genes came out in these studies. So when you look at what are the genes that are important, that are associated with COVID, the genes in the blood, so it seems that People with certain blood types maybe have more propensity, you know. But then also a lot of genes associated with musculoskeletal diseases, for sure. But you know the the basic problem is we can change all this with behavioral changes. Correct.
1: So 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 instead of the COVID 15 of fat, uh, we should be it should be fifteen pounds of muscle and stuff. That's right. You yeah.
3: Know. That's yeah. right. It's <laughs> that's your that's buffer people. zone.
1: Yeah. Okay.
3: But yeah. When, when we look at data of Taiwan, of Australia, correct? Of Finland, you know, of of so many other countries, we we see that with simple behavioral changes, we could change all this, correct?
1: Oh, hundred yeah, percent.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I think I think beyond the behavioral changes. I think just you know, if, if we can learn lessons from what happened with the first version of coronavirus back, I think it was two thousand three or two thousand four. I can't remember exactly. You know, the, Ta- SARS. Yes, yeah, SARS-, the oh, SARS. Yeah, the SARS. The SARS one. I don't remember the name. I know it was the first version of SARS. Taiwan released a lot of information because they got ravaged by it, and we just have to look into history and see what they did. And what they learned in the process, and you see that in a population of twenty-five, twenty-six million, they only had five deaths. New Zealand has a decent, you know, decent-sized population. It's not the size of Taiwan, but they had you know very little infection. Very little, and I don't think they had more than one or two deaths.
2: It also is representative of the health lifestyle. I think of some of these countries that are just generally healthier than Americans well, are.
0: I think it's the it's not, it's the behavior, but it's a stigmas too, associated with wearing a mask or maintaining some distance. And
1: it's the whole idea of it's politics and freedom and people. You know, so it's become more politicized here instead of, instead of really treating it as a healthcare issue for everybody. And uh, that's a different podcast. I think. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. We've already kind of gone into this on the other one. Before.
3: One constant, you, you can look at every country, that has been successful, no exception. Every country that has been successful, health professionals took charge of
0: COVID. In fact, Taiwan, if you, the VP has, I think, it's, I think it's a requirement or it's recommended that the vice president of their country is a public health official, or is at least managing the public health directly. So that, that tells you a lot right there that You know, we have to overcome our own inhibitions to, you know, acclimate to doing what's smart and doing what's necessary. And I think another thing on the manufacturing side is we need to be better prepared and going forward in the future. We need to have a biomedical manufacturing revolution in this country where we get back to making PPE, making ventilators, making the necessary tools that we can survive in case a place like. China, Wuhan, China, where a lot of that is being manufactured, goes shuts down for a few months.
2: you can speak to that too, just in our our materials and even implants, so much of that is is produced in China. we can't get certain implants anymore like we only have we're back ordered, we're back ordered. I can't even tell you how many times I've heard that because because that's our supply chain, and so we need to get back exactly to that where we are making what we need to, you know, be a successful and, health and system brings, here.
0: That brings me back to the Institute of Printing as well, because that is also a local place where you can manufacture right there, as long as you can source your materials, you know, for the printing process. So there's some advantages with these technologies.
2: As I say, yeah. I don't know if this might be spliced in later or for, into our earlier conversation, but as far as the 3D bioprinting limitations, what's the future? What's, what do you, where do you see that leading? Where are those limitations? Is it based on you know, imagination or the biomaterials available? Or
0: No, it, it's really right now, it's based on the limitation of the printing process. So the main issue with printing right now is the resolution of the printer itself. You can get to about two micron resolution pretty decently with a very expensive printer, but your average printer can get to about 0.1 millimeter resolution, meaning Anything you make in an XY direction or Z direction when you're making a 3D 3D material, you have a limitation of not being able to print features that are less than 0.1 millimeters.
2: What is that equivalent to in uh, like a size that's understandable? Like, uh,
0: well, um, <laughs> what's the size of the
3: 0.1 millimeters? I'm <laughs> thinking it's about 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 the, the 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 size of a hair,
1: a hair, yeah. That's fifty thousand nanometers, as far as I know.
0: Well, you could you could maybe make some large structures.
3: You know, you could make some large. I think in, in in about in about ten years, we 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 are going to be extremely good in making any organ in labs. Any organ. So,
2: right now, what is the smallest thing that you would feel that your your printer technology would be able to recreate or? Or to print. Well, reliably, reliably,
0: reliably well, with what we're working with, we can get about 0.05 millimeters, which is about half the thickness of human hair. But what we would like to be is in the um, 50 to 100 nanometer range, which is the size of specific extracellular matrix nano features that the cells interact with and that induce some of the regenerative processes as well as built structure. So that's amazing. Yeah, that's the, that's the main limitation right now is to make stable structures that, that can integrate in with the larger structure as you rebuild an organ. That's, that's the limitation. That's the main limitation right now.
2: If you had your choice, which organ would you rebuild?
0: first? My choice, obviously personal reasons, my retinas, but for well, the the one that I the one that I'm really interested in I don't know if we can do it with 3D printing, but the pancreas is the one that is the death sentence once you get the pancreatic cancer diagnosis. It's so mm-hmm. late in the process. Imagine if we can regenerate pancreas. So my, my, my
3: my dad died at 62.
0: Yeah, people are dying so young from that, and malaria hits the pancreas, and it's it's one of the, the, the organs that we need so much of, and it's so small. But you can't easily diagnose it because it's hidden behind other
3: organs. And also, and also, imagine how many people with diabetes you would be able to
0: help. Correct. It's a big impact organ.
1: Are there people working on that right now? I feel there probably is. We've talked about it, so somebody must be working on it.
3: Yeah. You you know know that there is one lab that has succeeded with the gallbladder, correct?
1: Oh wow.
2: And, and has had it implanted, or has made has printed that
3: outside of the body an entire body. Sure,
1: yeah, and it's like functional. Though. Like you, don't you need, need the, that
2: gallbladder anyway. Just yeah, we put, take it out.
1: <laughs> we take it out. We put it in the bucket. <laughs> we, <laughs> we take it out fairly regularly. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean,
0: actually actually, uh, there was a National Public Radio study uh, or, or story about fifteen years ago, twelve years ago, something like that, where a uh, researcher at Wake Forest, I believe, his name is Ant- Dr. Anthony Atala. He's somebody that we've met once or twice. And he he 3D printed uh, urinary bladders, genitalia for wounded soldiers, and they had wow. really good integration and able to function normally, or at least to some extent. And they did it in geriatric patients and be able to recover urinary bladders.
3: So that's amazing. So lungs, heart, heart. it's all
1: it's fr- all coming. It's all
3: possible. It's a group a group in, in Harvard that that a group in Harvard that 3D 3D printed a small heart. And the heart, the heart beat it, Oh know. my gosh. The heart it kept functions? beating, you know, in the, in the, in the, yeah.
1: It's like, it's mind blowing right now to think that you can
2: do that. The this heart, heart about the size
3: of a, a red heart and kept working, you know, for... I
2: swear that I was impressed when I watched them 3D print my tooth. Yeah. I thought it was like the coolest thing. Ever. I'm like, I like, do you want to watch it? I'm like, yes, I want to watch this. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. They they 3D print my tooth while I was sitting there in the office. It was amazing. That's, it. And That's incredible. Just, and then
1: they're talking about doing this kind of stuff. Somebody's going to try that. to 3D print the brain. Oh my gosh.
0: The other limitation, this is why I partnered with Dr. Brato so much, is the molecular biology associated with integration of the of the synthetic graft with the human tissue, there's still going to be an inherent intrinsic mismatch and the closer we get to being able to overcome that gap at the nano level, the, the easier we will be able to integrate those tissues within matters of minutes in the clinic versus hours, days, weeks, months, years.
1: So we could start living like 200 years, it sounds like. Yeah,
0: right. that's what we have to do in order for the implant to take right <laughs> Right now. So
1: so this has been, like, again, a mind-blowing research and it's been an amazing topic. You guys are I really changing some of the concepts that, like, even I had in terms of, you know, I guess... Preconceived notions about what's possible exactly. and, and moving forward in this type of technology is just incredible. A hundred percent. And so, you know, are, do you, for both of you, Dr. Brado and Dr. Varanasi, do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to get out to our audience members?
3: I was uh, thinking about all the final thoughts and then I was uh, thinking that what we really want is the tricorder, correct? Is the handheld device from Star Trek that we just go Oh yeah <laughs>
1: Gee, if you can do that in my lifetime please
3: <laughs> so no but my 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 final thought is that despite you know the the difficult times that we are going through with COVID nineteen that is a a very high level a new level of collaboration in sciences. That did not exist before COVID-19, and so scientists are collaborating now at a level that did not exist before. And so we find some solace, you know, on this. And I think the the, the message is is a positive message, you know. I think that we we live on really extraordinary times, you know. Uh, incredible opportunities that each of us can find really some some meaningful purpose, you know, to, to serve, you know, humanity at a higher level. And so many things are exciting and are going to keep happening that are going to improve, I think, our health, that we can continue to age, but age with with happiness and stronger and lead much happier lives.
1: Oh, I like that message of positivity. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Varanasi?
0: Yeah, my, my message really is something I tell my students a lot, which is I'm a big football fan. I'm a big 49ers fan, actually. And I always tell my students, I want you to watch the 1981 NFC Championship game. Montana's down, four minutes left to go, and they had to get the ball down the field and score a touchdown and they made progress but also made setbacks along the way. And at the end, they finally win the game and you know the catch and everything. So what I always tell them is, there's always gonna be negatives. There's always gonna be roadblocks. Use your own limitations as a way to get past those roadblocks. What you perceive as a limitation is a way to get over an obstacle. And this is the thing, this is the mentoring message that everybody here in our group always uh, tells our students. And this is something I inherently tell them specifically on exactly what's the way to do it. And the way is take your negatives and turn them into positives and keep matriculating through the process. Keep chopping the wood because eventually you'll make a a great tree or you'll keep chopping the marble. You'll make a great sculpture out of it and imparting that message to 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 younger generation is what we need if we're going to survive as 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 a species as a people in order to you know be able to live our lives to the fullest so that's the message i i usually give to those people who are you know looking for a message that i have i have disadvantages i use them to my advantage clearly based on what i've been able to develop so that's what i always tell people
1: yeah, there's no excuse for anybody else. Okay. Very good. No. <laughs> That's, uh, okay. No, those well, are both your excuses.
0: to your benefit. So.
1: Right, right, exactly. But uh, thank you so much. You're, uh, b- the research is just innovative. The Bone Muscle Research Center is an amazing center, and I think there's going to be great things coming out of there. But And we hope to have you come back on oh, that'd you be know, great. Uh, in the future. I feel like there, we only touched pro- just... On a fraction of what we could probably talk about with you guys, so thank you again thank so much you, for thank coming
3: on. you for having on. us. has been
0: really amazing. Yeah, it's a great podcast. Thank you, you so you, much. You you are both fantastic interviewers. Thank you, thank you so yeah. much. And it, and it's and it's great that you're clinical because you know we have more accountability for what we do. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I think, but that's, that's why, that's why, like, I came up with this idea because there's so much happening in so many different uh, scientific disciplines that have some sort of collaboration with medicine, but they're happening without too much communication between, you know, the clinicians and the scientists.
0: I think a message for the clinical folks is be the, be the innovators, you know? the So you don't have robots to take over your jobs.
3: <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. This, this is really this is <laughs> you know I I, I wrote I, I wrote a short article to practitioners in the United States suggesting everyone to incorporate the grip strength device in the annual exam because something as simple as checking the grip strength correct because. Grip strength directly correlates with morbidity and mortality. So if you are following the grip strength once per year in your patients, you know if the patient is getting weaker, something is wrong, correct?
1: Uh, yeah, I do that because I'm a hand surgeon, so that every one of my patients gets that. So you know, I don't do that. <laughs> People look at me funny. I'm a foot and ankle She's trauma foot person. Ankle. <laughs> She's a foot ankle surgeon. So. No, no, it's interesting though. I want to go get mine tested. Right yeah, now. no, it's it's kind of. I was kind of disappointed <laughs> at my grip strength actually, because <laughs> I try it every time. Like every time I'm in there, like, is it better?